At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 375th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Do you want to save money at the grocery store, eat more organic whole foods, cultivate food security, and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food, and I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is finding an ally in nature for waste disposal. We're talking with Eddie Garcia about styrofoam eating bugs. Eddie has an EBN, or as he likes to call it, educated by nature degree. With over 30 years of off-grid living on a remote Hawaiian island, he has developed a deep connection to nature. It has taught him fundamental truths that are woven into living earth systems, observation, consistency, and patience. Eddie is the lead designer for Living Earth Systems, which designs and builds holistic agriculture systems for the future. He is one of the founders of REC, Regenerative Education Centers, which demonstrates alternative technologies and approaches to solve some of our planet's current problems. Eddie educates and inspires to promote regenerative lifestyles. Welcome to the show today, Eddie. Are you ready to rock styrofoam eating bugs? I sure am. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? I sure can. We're going to define styrofoam eating bugs. These are, in fact, a particular beetle larva, wow. a darkling beetle that's found all over the planet. Uh-huh. And we have them set up in a situation where they're able to ingest styrofoam and then kind of poop it out as a semi-organic material, which we're then able to process with a bunch of other creatures, fungi and such, into a system and actually bioremediate it back into organic compounds. Wow, that's absolutely incredible. How did you come to figuring that one out? 
part of the story you heard in the beginning is with many years living in a remote valley in the Hawaiian Islands, I've been on a quest to grow food and to grow soil and to further my understanding to nature by working with nature to sort of improvise and see what's already around us and what works for us. So I've constantly been poking around with several different types of earthworms and other creatures and sort of experimenting with them, putting them in jars, seeing what they eat. That led to one day me finding some beetle larvae in a can of oatmeal and realizing they were eating the oatmeal chips, which I thought resembled wood chips. And I was like, okay, they're breaking that down into some useful material and that's their role in nature. So why don't I try putting them with some wood chips? So I started experimenting with them for many years. One day they chewed through a styrofoam container. I started put two and two together and started adding some styrofoam to their diet. Uh-huh. Lo and behold, <laughs> they were eating it. You know, and you're just taking yeah. it to the next logical step. Yeah. So through finding that out and realizing this was some cool potential they had. For many years, I've sort of been experimenting with it. And then we realized some universities had picked it up with a similar worm, a common mealworm. I say worm, but it's a beetle larva. Mm -hmm. And they were able to show that through their tests that this worm was able to digest it into organic compounds. We were using a separate species of insect that's like 10 times more efficient. We're able to control when it actually molts its skin and we can seep it in this larval stage for up to a year. So we're kind of crossing the T's and taking it to the next level, dot in the eyes, and allowing for some improvisation through our observational studies and then testing the material to see what's happening. And we're still a long ways off, but we're just breaking the surface with it. Wow. This is why I love nature, because we human beings, we know how to mess things up pretty big. And we've done a really good job of that. With styrofoam, it lasts, what, 500 years or more? Yeah, there's all kinds of different numbers on that, but it lasts a really long time in whatever the given situation is, or it breaks down into smaller pieces, which right. can actually wind up in the environment. Yeah, I read a book a few years ago called A World Without Us, and they have a whole chapter in there on how plastics and styrofoams break down to smaller and smaller and smaller chunks, and that they get ingested by species in the ocean, and you know, yada, 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 it just creates more of a problem. Yeah, it's true. Fortunately for us, there's a lot of creatures that have developed with nature, and some of them have actually evolved into being able to eat petroleum products. I say petroleum products are styrene. Some of these things are found in nature already. Mm. They were found in nature, they were manipulated, and they were turned into a chemical structure, which we think is unbreakable. But the truth is, to break those bonds, we just have to look to nature for its own chemistry. And some of these creatures were designed. These insects in particular carry a bacteria in their gut that's actually able to ingest it. Styrene is found in peaches and apples and pears and a few other things already. So it seems only natural that things would evolve to deal with some of these different facets of what nature puts forward. And then we manipulate into chemical products for our own use. Oh, my gosh. So really what you're telling me is that nature's figured out a way to clean up our mess. Yeah, she found a way to clean up our mess in a sense. Now, I think the answers are all around us in nature. Yeah, It's up to us to at least look for them there and see that nature has the answers right there around us to clean up some of our mess. I do believe that. So the possibilities around this discovery are mind boggling. Can you kind of tell us about what's possible here? Yeah, what's possible? I think overall, the largest thing that's possible from my point of view is to inspire people to think out of the box and change the status quo. Let's look 
beyond just recycling, let's look at bioremediation for some of our problems. And let's also kind of look at the causes of disposable world and try to get past that and realize what's done by it. But everyone's always pointing out the doom and the gloom. So now here's something looking to nature that may provide a solution. And I say may provide a solution, but I think with anything, we need to cross our T's and dot our I's to the utmost levels or else we could just be contributing to some of the problems with it. Yeah. But I see theoretically as the possibility for us to release these things into landfills and actually have them target the styrofoam and eat it out of the landfill and bioremediate it so it's not there anymore. The amount of styrofoam in the landfills is actually a very small by number, 0.1 of a percent, I believe. Uh-huh. But sometimes in some instances, it could take up 30% of the mass of the entire dump. So you're talking about a thousandth of a percentage that could take up 30% of the mass wow. through what it is. That has gigantic ecological impacts and implications. So with that mindset, that's one way. People have talked about potentially pulling the gut bacteria out, turning it into a spray and being able to spray plastic or stick it into chambers that are advanced thermophilic decomposition, like bacterially breaking it down and heating it up so that it goes back into what it came from, sort of like a molecular restructuring, if you will. Right. Those are some of the possibilities, but I think the possibilities are far beyond just having the creatures that eat styrofoam. Right now, one of the ways I'm using them and one of the ways we're getting it out there is through, I ride environmentally conscious surfboards in a sense. We're trying to change the status quo in the surf industry and let people know that, hey, you could have a lighter carbon footprint with the materials you choose to have used on your surfboard Mm -hmm. or where you're having it made. For instance, I will break a surfboard and then I will feed it to the beetle larva. They'll eat the entire surfboard. Wow. Yeah, so that's how we're using it in the media and we're inspiring people. We're using the surf industry sort of as a launch pad. People in Iowa wear surf clothes. It's one of the highest rated things that kids want to learn in school is to be a surfer. We're doing some cool things within the surf industry and through trying to create a cool farmer and like making kids realize that stewardship is not only needs to be done for our future, but it's really cool. So I feel like when things like this come around, we don't know exactly what the possibilities are, where it can go. We've started that conversation with this, and now we'd like to, in the next few years, through our nonprofit, be able to do a lot more testing and to share it with people and get other people to kind of start thinking out of the box. Mm -hmm. There's probably a lot of answers out there that are right in front of us, but we won't really know that until we take the first step. So I think some of those are some of the most powerful shooting from the hip things that I feel. Perfect. And how are you sharing this research? So we have our for-profit company is called Living Earth Systems. We do a lot of stuff out of there. We have online courses. We do all sorts of different functions, farm-to-table dinners. We speak. We make ourselves available for workshops and all sorts of other things. But on the larger side of things, we have a nonprofit called Regenerative Education Centers. And those are education centers that focus on setting up models of new technologies, everything from atmospheric watering to biological swimming pools, aquaponic systems, regenerative soil building. And this is just one of the facets of that. So half of our mission statement with our nonprofit is we create films as well. So by putting those films out there, we can educate a larger audience. 
and we can help serve a local audience with the centers themselves by education. Actually, we pull in plastics out of the ocean and we turn them into materials that we use for composting and we give them a spot in a regenerative story. So you mentioned just a moment ago using it for composting. I was curious, I wanted to kind of unpack more that these bugs are eating these plastics, these styrofoams, and something's happening in the bug's gut and they're pooping out something that you can actually use for fertilizer? In a sense, you could almost say that. A lot of people can check out the study online that Stanford did with the common mealworm. Uh-huh. And if you look at that study closely, you have to be careful. We've run into problems with people saying, oh, cool, we're going to start feeding our surfboards to mealworms. And that's going to be an organic material I can use for a fertilizer. It doesn't exactly work like that. It works like the very first compound, the first time they eat it, they break something that's partially broken down into lower chains or simpler chains of styrene. doesn't make it organic yet. Mm-hmm. And there's also a lot of material that hasn't been processed. So what we've developed is a system through screening and floating and also treating the material that has been processed with mycelium and then also throwing in other creatures like wood lice, amphipods, several different creatures, and ultimately earthworms and the beetle larvae themselves again in the very last stages turn it into a rich humic acid-like worm casting sort of material. And all the tests show that, yes, it's truly indeed an organic compound. But I believe in like as much research and testing as possible to make sure we're not missing anything and releasing any toxins back into the atmosphere. And we're a long way from some of those tests. It can look like the richest, blackest material in the world. Great. We are growing plants with it. But for now, we're keeping those plants in pots. And what we're doing that we allow it to focus in right off the bat is I can regrow flax material. I can break a board, have the worms eat the styrofoam, put it in a pot, grow flax material, process that flax material, and have my new board glassed with that material. And also my new board is made from a blank that's taken from an old board out of a dump. So now I'm set of setting an example with the boards that I'm out there ripping on. I'm actually saying, hey, I, this is an old someone's throwaway. I put it back together with stuff I was able to grow. And it's a cool story. Right. And that's we're able to reach a larger audience. Eventually, the municipals and the restaurant industry will go, whoa, we got a backyard full of styrofoam. Maybe this will work for us. Or maybe we should help this nonprofit and put some money into some testing so it can go to that next level. All the possibilities are out there. Yeah. And so that's where we're at with it. We're sort of like putting it out there to the world. We're not saying, hey, this is the answer. We're also saying, be careful with it. We have filed a patent for the system that I've designed to do this with. Uh And we are free sourcing that through our nonprofit. We're just wanted to make sure that it didn't get tied up and that it's protected in the sense of that it's done right. And we don't have people out there letting the enthusiasm get ahead of the facts. Yeah. Excellent. So you've used the word several times and in your bio, we used it regenerative. And I know enough about regenerative design to know that I just heard you tell me a regenerative design story. Can you say a little bit more about that word and what it means? The story of regenerative and what it means. It simply means to regenerate the soil rather than to deplete it. And many years ago, when we were sort of struggling with what organic was, they were allowing a lot of things that shouldn't be allowed, up to date still. A farm that doesn't have a compost pile and allows organic chicken pellets or blood or feather meal to be stuffed into the ground, it will have the same signature as petroleum pellets if it doesn't have the biological life underneath the ground to process it, allow it to process into the bigger picture, into the soil bio. 
So the idea of regenerative is making sure that all of your practices constantly build and grow soil so that your food is actually a byproduct of growing soil. Whoopee, figure it out. Global warming, carbon sequestration. That's exactly what we need to be doing. We need to be growing soil by sequestering carbohydrates into the soil to hold them out of the atmosphere and to build healthy living soil. And that's how we grow the ultimately rich food. We regenerate the land around us. We allow with these systems for a better ecosystem. For a pool, for instance, that would be poisoning raccoons, birds, bats, you name it, bees. Take out the chlorine, turn it into something that helps you water your surrounding landscape, and you're actually nurturing all of those creatures around you now. That's kind of a regenerative ideal. The ideal of that what you do and what you're involved in regenerates your surroundings rather than just take, 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 and deplete. That doesn't lead to sustainability, and that's where that works come from Uh all these buzzwords that have been around for so long we're trying to like really push people into that idea that everything we do we need to kind of have some idea of where the future is with it I often say that I'm not a big fan of the word sustainable because sustainable and sustainability simply sustains the mess that we've created for ourselves. That's why I like this notion of regenerative design. You just said my next sentence for me. So we are so on the same page with that. Nice. That's exactly how I feel because that's it. That's what we've done. We've said enough. This is it. Just enough is enough. We're going to just survive. So we should thrive. If it could be a thrive farm, that'd be great for me too. But I think to regenerate is we've done the damage and it was perfect before we damaged it. So let's regenerate it to what it was and let's adopt that in our lifestyles. Bring your coffee cup. Don't use a straw. Try to think about, you know, 500 million coffee cup lids a day in the dump, 500 million straws. There's little simple things we can do that will help to regenerate the environment around us. So regeneration goes past agriculture. It goes with lifestyles, with corporations. You're seeing a lot of B Corps pop up lately. Patagonia has just recently introduced to the world their regenerative organic certification teamed up with Dr. Bronner's. That's what we'll be using on all of our farms in the future. And that's what we'll be pushing is these regenerative organic certifications because we feel they actually address what needs to be done. Wow. Sounds like a great topic for the podcast going into the future. Yeah, for sure. I think that what we're doing here with these beetle larvae is just the tip of the iceberg with what we're trying to get across. We feel like the time has never been riper for people to want to learn better stewardship, for people to want to have some of the answers. Those answers haven't come about because the status quo hasn't been changed too much. A lot of the universities didn't even have an organic program until like 10 years ago. So all of the last 80, 90 years of farming in California, for instance, when I come here, I've never seen such irresponsible taking agriculture. Mm -hmm. Just take, take, take. There's very few examples of give back. And that's what needs to happen here. They're wondering why the salt table is high in the groundwater or there's so much erosion, fires, and so much displacement of the natural habitat. People aren't working with nature. They're working against it and dominating it. They kind of mistook that word dominion for domination. Right. So with that in mind, from my point of view, the only way we can address that is by examples, solutions, showing people working models that work and they thrive. And you actually start to have a different mentality of what wealth is. Eating a carrot out of your yard and sharing it with your grandkid or swimming in a pool that doesn't bleach your hair and turn it green. There's little things that lead to a more healthy, cohesive existence. Yeah, healthy relationship with nature. You know, we're almost divorced from nature at this point in time and people are screaming for answers and ways. And how can we get back there? So I think that's really an awesome part of this. 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. So I'm sitting over here just shaking my head. Yes. Yes. This is what we need to be talking about every single day. So thank you. Yeah. And thank you. This is what we need to do. These are the conversations that we need to start and have people jump in. I'm hoping that what we've done with these larvae that are able to ingest styrofoam and turn it back into organic material, that there are greater minds than myself that will step up to take it to the next level. And I think that's why we've made it available through our nonprofit regenerative education centers. That's recenters.org. Perfect. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. Okay. So I have this sort of strange relationship to the word failure. It does not exist in my vocabulary. Yes. Those are my greatest strengths. Those are my assets. So I cannot say a time that I failed. I can give you many times when it hasn't gone my way Uh because I haven't observed enough or paid enough attention or just timing caused, you know, chaos in the universe. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example since it brings right home to what we're talking about. Beetle larvae that I found, because I had them in a styrofoam container and they ate their way through that container. Many years ago, Yvonne Chouinard from Patagonia took a trip with us and I took him on a kayak voyage for seven days. On that voyage, he brought some surfboards along with him that were some of the first EPS expanded polystyrene surfboards that were made. Mm -hmm. So we broke those on that trip and they wound up sitting with us for a long time because further into that trip, Yvonne fell off a cliff and broke his arm and we had to get him medevaced out on the fifth day. But anyway, so when I finally, him and I had some long conversations about what these boards were and of what getting a little bit more sustainable footprint meant within the surf industry. So when I had these worms eat through this container, it said really clearly on it, EPS styrofoam. I was like, whoa, I took those surfboards and I put them in an aquarium with these worms and they ate the entire surfboards. All they left was a shell. I was like, holy guacamole. Yeah. Ate these surfboards. So that was a mistake. They got out of my styrofoam container and they ate the surfboards. That led directly to what we're doing today Yeah. with the surfboards and using the surf industry to get it out there and the cool factor of the story and everything that's gone on with it. It was a pretty magical sort of a moment for me to look back on that many years later and go, wow, that's pretty amazing. Was that a mistake or was that just like awesome? And this is exactly the reason I asked this question is because our best learning experiences come from the steps that we take every day and then watching where things don't work and learning from it. Don't you think? Yeah, I do. I feel like our mistakes are our greatest assets and things that we're too quick to chalk off as a mistake mm-hmm. and be told not to try it again. That's part of the problem. If we're going to achieve anything, we need to fail. We cannot be afraid of things we consider failure. They are our greatest assets. Oh, beautifully said. What do you consider your biggest success? I would have to be in note with like probably trying to say my biggest success is my greatest failures. All the things that I was told to go to school full time, to get a job that conforms with what someone else wants to do. I would say all in all, it led to my relationship with nature, realizing that I could stand on my own two feet and I had a great ally and that was nature itself. And so I sought to understand the workings of it. And now I feel like I'm an infant at the patterns of understanding the patterns of nature around me. And that's led me to a very fulfilled life in many ways. So I consider my very greatest success that relationship that I have with nature. Yeah. When did you discover all of this? I finally called it something in 1991 when I discovered permaculture, but I knew for decades before I understood what permaculture was, I knew that there was a different way. How did you come to understanding this relationship with nature? Well, I think 
as you grow up as a child and you look around you, if you really let it stick, some of the first things I saw was what were my elders doing? What were the oldest of people doing after they've gone through this whole life? Most of them were out in their garden working with roses or cutting <laughs> the grass one blade at a time. Right. That was a really good example for me. So I think from a very, very, very early age, one of the first books I read was The One Straw Revolution. Oh, yes. By an old Japanese farmer. I think that for some reason, whatever it is, I'm not sure. That path has been clear to me from really early. I I think someone told me when I was really young, the three stages of acquirement, survival, acquirement, and then philanthropy. What can you give back? I realized through watching people in the garden, I could plant a seed and give away wheelbarrows of eggplant. So in a sense, I sort of skipped the step in those three steps and I didn't have to go through that acquirement phase, which gave me sort of a different view on what I regarded as wealth. There are two ways to wealth, to acquire more or to desire less. Because I knew I could be on the giving end of the stick with less, that allowed me more time for me. Yeah, I wrote in the eighth grade, this was 1974, a paper on how we were overfishing the oceans. These seeds, like you, got planted very early with me. Yeah, I'm just inspired whenever I hear anybody talk about the ocean. So as an athlete, kite surfing, surfing, stand-up paddleboarding, snowboarding, being having the opportunity to have been able to travel a little bit with it and sent to exotic places and show up in third world countries. There were contests that I was scheduled to go to that I never made because I met villagers and realized they had tilapia in the stream behind their house. And I was able to help them set up an aquaponic system. Visiting many years later, seeing them sell lettuce to their neighbors and being one of the kids in the neighborhood that had something going. Those are really kind of the cool things that I saw happening. It was led to by my love for the ocean and being yeah. able to travel. I try to promote regenerative ideals on the land because everything on the land eventually winds up in the ocean as well. Very much connected to that. So I can appreciate that. Yeah. Wow. And what drives you? I would say what drives me is the need. I'm looking at how the world is right now and people are hopeless. Everyone's pointing out the gloom and the doom. And if people are pointing out the solutions, usually it's for a buck. And there are some people out there that are really trying to make some changes right now. And that doesn't happen until we all jump on that together. So I feel like we're on a dawning of a sort of a new age of cooperation and working with each other. The rising tide floats all the boats. And that's what I feel like. And I'm trying to help be a part of that rising tide to sort of communicate. I see people who want an idea and they want to be stewards. I have the ability to share some of these answers with them. It feels good to feed someone their first carrot they grew, you know what I mean? Or show someone something that they thought was right already actually works and it doesn't have to be so complicated. That's what drives me is sort of the response to it, the need for it. And yeah, I would have to say that's probably the number one thing driving me at the time. And also, I love it. I want to take care of my playground. And I'm a little worried about people's not understanding it and they're not going to get there in time unless they start to change their mentality. So I want to gently try it through inspiring and telling the stories and showing solutions. What is so cool about talking with you, and I'm going to call Epic on this. My listeners know that when I hear Epic, I always call it out. This is the message for me that I have been sharing for decades. And it's so nice to hear other people like Eddie Garcia has discovered this decades ago. And all these notions of cooperation and working with nature are kind of floating up into the mainstream consciousness and we're sharing it every day. So that is so incredibly cool. Thank you for that. You're welcome. I'm stoked. I feel the same way. I love it when there's a 
a resonance of connection. Yeah. And I'm really stoked for people like you that are putting it out there. Because now is the time when the ears are all there to hear it and to listen and to want to have ways to play a part in it. And I think that the time is now. So yeah, really stoked to be a part of it. And I'm really glad for the opportunity to be here and speaking with you and all your listeners as well. Well, thank you. Thank you. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? You know, I struggle with this one because there's a few of them I bounce between and I'm just going to say it anyway, even though you recommend a book. One of them, it's obvious why, because if you look closer at what we do in my relationship to earthworms, I've included multiple species and their relationships together would be Darwin's notes on earthworms. Oh. The last 20 years of his life as a fanatic on earthworms with his observational studies. And there's some really incredible information in there. But that's not actually the book I'm going to recommend. The reason I'm throwing that book out there, the book that I'm going to recommend is called The Erosion of Civilizations by David Montgomery. And this is a story of what agriculture has done on our planet, how much of the actual usable loam topsoil was on the planet, how much is on the planet that's left. And you're going to find that we're down to 2%. Wow. of the actual usable, farmable topsoil on the planet. Uh-huh. And this book outlaw actually logs the history of what has happened since the very beginning in the Fertile Crescent in Mesopotamia and how agriculture has led to the demise of civilization after civilization or very possibly has led to that. It's a very strong argument that perhaps civilization after civilization has grown because of its ability once they found farming to thrive with the products they could develop it out of it. But constantly looking at the land as just something they could take from and not give back to ultimately led to every one of these systems burning themselves out, just like the Great Dust Bowl, yep. just as we look at what happened in ancient Egypt. These stories are told, and this book goes through them very factually and outlines the possibilities and what's gone down and where we're at with agriculture on the planet, where we have been at with agriculture and deforestation on the planet, what the implications of it are and what the results of it are this exact moment. And it tells you that whole story, and it will be really educational and informative to those who read it. I really recommend it as an audio book because it is somewhat repetitive. And if that doesn't work for you, just sit there and to listen to it. It's a fairly easy listen. Uh-huh. And I think it's one of the most important books ever written for this day and age. So I was actually sitting here thinking as you were sharing about the book, it's like, man, I need to get that book. I wonder if it's an audio. It is an audio. Nice. We've also put a bunch of films out recently, I'm going to mention. And I think we should probably try and make those available through your link or, or something like that. Absolutely. I don't know how to actually say them some of them are embedded in our website. If you go to recenters.org. Re, R-E-C-E-N-T-E-R-S.org. Correct. You can find the latest carbon story where we tell the story of what carbon sequestration means and what can be done about it. We simplify it so children can understand it. That's embedded on that nonprofit site. If you go to our for-profit Living Earth Systems site, you can see that we offer classes from how to make soil to all sorts of different things on there. And there's another film embedded on there that sort of tells some of the story of what we've talked about today, some of the different things we're doing and how we're implementing 
what regenerative means in agriculture. Excellent. So those will also be listed on our show notes page for the show today. What one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? The final piece of advice that I would say I have for your listeners is that many times I've been told by people, I just don't have a green thumb. We all have a green thumb. We all are born with the ability to steward this beautiful planet that we've been given. That starts with those very three core values that I talked about. Observation, consistency, and patience. If we take the time to plant the seed, we observe to make sure that we planted it right in the right setting, and we consistently water or don't water to make sure that we're trying to reach our goal, then we'll be successful. If we fail, then we'll have learned what to do the next time, and we're still on the road to success. That's what consistency means. So for me, the greatest advice I have to give anyone would just be those three simple things. You can do it. Start spending some time in nature. Sit down. Look really close at what's going on around you. And if you take it on and you say, I'm going to do it, then follow those three rules. And I think that that's probably the best advice that I have to give anyone is to try and do that and develop that relationship to what's around them. Because the end payback is incredible. It's huge. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Eddie. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here and to chat with everyone about this. Absolutely. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Let's start there. And then we have a couple other more resources to share. Okay, so I make myself really available. Our website is called livingearthsystems.com. At any time, you can go into info there. You can contact me. I believe the phone number is also available. Perfect. I make myself available. Feel free to contact me and talk about any of these subjects that we've talked about. Mm -hmm. You can go through our website. You can take online courses. You can join our Earth Stewards Club, which helps raise a little bit of money to support some of the programs that we have. Go to our recenters.org to our nonprofit profit, sign on, be a part of the discussion. As we move forward, try and see where we're at. We'll keep you in the loop. Sign up for our mailing list and stay in the loop with us or contact us. Perfect. I would also say some of the other people we work with, if you're going to order a surfboard, look at guys in the industry like sustainablesurf.org and what they're doing. Look at Rye Hair Shapes in the LA area. We're working with nonprofits like Kiss the Ground. They have some really incredible stuff going on with regenerative agriculture uh-huh. and the soil story. Try to look up the soil story, I think, dot com. And that is with Kiss the Ground. They're a nonprofit in the Venice Beach area. Yeah, I think right off the bat, those are just some of the things we mentioned. There's a lot of other people we work with. Don't have the time to mention them all here. Perfect. But yeah, stoked, you guys. Excellent, excellent, excellent. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash living earth systems. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio, among others. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Claiming your inner urban farmer is easy. Grow food, share it, and name your farm. Then let the world know you're an urban farmer while supporting our podcast. Pick up your urban farmer bling, hats, and t-shirts at imanurbanfarmer.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. 
One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.